welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. My name is Max. Yes, it is. And my name is Rich. And on this podcast, Max and Rich will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode in particular, we're taking a look at Weird War Tales number 46. But first, Rich has a little something for you. For the first time in a long time, no retroactive history. Damn, must be slipping. So I guess we're going right into the Intel report. Grunts, a three-issue miniseries by Arcana Publishing in 2006. Script by Shannon Eric Denton and Keith Giffen. Art by Matt Jacobs. November 1944, an American patrol ordered to rendezvous with a general at the front gets the shock of a lifetime when they run into German super soldiers that have already captured the general and wiped out his escort. Can they rescue him before he cracks under torture? More importantly, how? I know how by not linking up with Keith Giffen and Arcana Publishing. Did, did this miniseries actually finish? <laughs> Gee, what are you referring to? <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, the, the, it, it's actually a little bit a little misleading because the story itself is only two, uh, two issues. And then there was like a third, like follow-up 10 years in the future against the Soviets thing that falls under the title, obviously. So yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll accept that. And uh, while I begrudgingly accept that, you guys can take a little break and listen to a promo for another fine piece of podcast entertainment and when we come back from the break, we'll take an in-depth look at the issue at hand. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While well, the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. And we're back. And as I mentioned before the break, we will be diving into Weird War Tales number 46 this time around. And Rich is right here, ready and waiting to hit you with the cover detail. The mystery and madness of Weird War Tales can now be yours for 30 cents. Price hike, art by Leo Duranona. We have our green army men in the Weird War Tales title. Under the three heads on the line of DC Superstars banner, in an ancient tomb, a German soldier surrounded by skeletons lying on slabs drops his MP40 and backs away in terror against a stone wall. In the foreground, a glowing native hand wearing a spiked bracelet and wielding a dagger bursts out of the ground, the weapon aimed directly at the German's chest. Cover date, May, June, 1976. State of release, February 17th, 1976. 
No Killjoy that I can see. Charge right into CNC. The last time we saw Durnona was also the first time in the full-length battle tale, The Three Wars of Don Q from issue 37 that we both hated so much. As referenced then, his work reminds me a lot of Klaus Janssen's, both of whom started drawing about the same time. So I like certain aspects of Durnona's art, but other aspects continue to not work for me. The cover is just way too busy. It took me several seconds to even see the dropped MP40. The background blue and gray coloring is drab, although the bright yellow on the foreground hand certainly draws the eye in. Gotta give this an overall L. Durnona staying true to form, although admittedly this is a lot better than Don Q. It is. And I gotta give it a W, folks. I wouldn't have known this was Durnona's work based on the old Don Q art that we were exposed to. This piece grabs the eye and has moodiness and atmosphere to spare. And for me, it sort of brought to mind Metallica's metal up your ass would be first album cover. I put a picture of it in the script. Yeah, that was going to be the title of their first album until the record label stepped in. They had used it as the title of a live performance demo that was going around. So we got to kill them all instead because a bloody hammer mentioning homicide is somehow less damaging to the youth of America than a silly thing with a guy raising a mace up out of a toilet and the word ass. Got to protect the children, people. Think about the children. Back to the cover of this comic book. I say, what's not to like? Even the shadows on the back walls of the chamber are a nice touch of the soldier's outstretched hand, the skeleton's ribcage, etc. And as Rich mentioned, I got to point out here, uh, being a little remiss in my layout nerd duties, that upraised hand with the triangular blade pointing right to the center of the cover. You can't complain about design work here. It's all there. Uh, Good stuff, I say. So with our differences out of the way for now... Cover it. <laughs> we will move on to the first full-length story in the issue before Rich makes any more random noises while I'm talking. Take it away. <laughs> Kill or be killed. Nine pages. Script by Jack Olek. Art by George Evans. Luftwaffe fighter pilot Lieutenant Steiner watches as the pilot bails out of his latest victory, a P-47 Thunderbolt. Steiner's commander orders him to kill the American in his chute. If you don't kill him today, he may kill you tomorrow. Shoot! But Steiner refuses and banks away from the helpless American. There's no honor in it. A second P-47 suddenly drops behind him, riddling his plane and avenging his kill. Wounded, Steiner crash lands in a cemetery and is knocked unconscious. He is unaware of being pulled from the flaming wreckage. Hours later, he awakens in an underground tomb surrounded by skeletons of the long dead. Five other Germans gaze down at him, along with a sixth man, Count St. Clair, who had rescued him. They're in the catacombs under his chateau. Steiner is puzzled. Why would a Frenchman help Germans? A man must survive, says St. Clair. And who knew who would win the war? If Germany wins, at least he'd have some German friends. Another of the Germans confirms that St. Clair occasionally takes one of them and smuggles him back across their lines. As an officer and a flyer, Steiner demands to be taken back first. 
but St. Clair insists his wounds are too severe to take the trek. His turn will come. Steiner is a professional soldier and is suspicious of the traitor's Frenchman. The Count is escorting Kranz back tonight, and, ignoring the protests of the others that the Count had insisted it was forbidden to go outside, Steiner follows at a distance. Losing the duo in the forest, the pilot is startled to hear Kranz scream. He discovers Kranz laying on the ground of St. Clair leaning over him and runs up to help. Steiner is amazed to discover the Count is a vampire! The Count is no Count. How about that? Pulling out his Luger, Steiner opens fire as St. Clair charges him. The rounds don't phase the vampire in the least. Maybe Steiner didn't like to kill, but St. Clair had to, to survive. Swatting the empty Luger aside, the Count lunges for Steiner's neck. Steiner grabs a nearby rock and slams it across the vampire's face. The blow throws St. Clair backwards, and he is impaled on a broken tree limb. The vampire screams as he dies. An American patrol hears it and comes to investigate. Steiner could simply return to Germany now, but instead chooses to save the others back at the chateau from the patrol. No more killing. The Germans don't believe the story. In fact, they're convinced Steiner killed St. Clair out of jealousy for not taking him back first and has doomed them all. They attack Steiner, who doesn't want to fight. But amazingly, they can't hold him. He has the strength of ten men. Steiner throws the five men aside without effort, stunning them. The pilot doesn't understand how it's possible. Glimpsing into a puddle of water, he's horrified to discover he has no reflection. A quick check of his neck reveals two spots of blood. St. Clair had bitten him. That meant he was a vampire as well. As the five Germans rouse and begin to resume the battle, Steiner flees. At the end of the catacombs, Steiner sees that the sun had risen and smiles. Without slowing down, he charges into the light, arms raised, and his pursuers are shocked to watch him turn into a skeleton and die. He'd made his decision and stuck by it, to kill only when, and who, he must. No kill joy, X. Actually, sir, I didn't put it in the script, but I just thought of a killjoy. So let me push up my nerd glasses and tell you that in no vampire legend I know of do you turn into a vampire after one bite. That's werewolves. If you get mauled by a werewolf and live, you're a werewolf now. But vampires have to visit you three times to turn you. If they drain you without killing you three times, you become a vampire. That's pretty consistent. I don't know of any vampire myth where it's one bite and off you go. That's either zombies or werewolves. So imagine an 11th hour or whatever, Killjoy. What the hell? I do that. I know. Hey, Max. <laughs> Max and Vampire Killjoy. This, this, is, this is his sweet spot, folks. Go listen to the whole show. He's done this a couple of times. <laughs> I was reading quick because we're trying to put in two, uh, two records before you go off to the army. So I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of myself for missing that the first time. But I got it when you were reading the synopsis. So for my real CNC, I'll say... Right out of the gate, the host intro panel is a win for me, with the nice touch of our skeletal instructor pointing to the title of the story, which is written on a little chalkboard slate floating nearby. I liked it. Very charming. Of course, the aerial action on the first page is a solid 10. It's George Evans, after all. So 
even I'm impressed by it. <laughs> the art in general is pretty great throughout the entire story as well. In particular, all of page three gives me a Midnight Tales from Charlton Comics vibe. So you know I like that. There's lots of word balloons, not a lot of action. It should all feel cluttered and dull, but Evans's skill with panel design and character acting makes it all compelling instead. So big hit for me, that whole page. On page four, panel three, we get a nicely super spooky silhouette panorama panel. And on page five, the opening splash panel of Steiner versus the newly discovered vampire count is pretty great, as is the full row panel that kicks off page eight, showing Steiner tossing his fellow Nazis into each other like bowling pins. Back on page six, going back now, like I said, <laughs> it's my show, or at least it's my CNC. I make the rules. So going back to page six, I was amused by the fully on panel impaling in panel three, followed by the tastefully silhouetted impaling in the very next panel. It all fits in nicely with the sound of musically happy looking, willing self skeletonization of Steiner that wraps it all up on page nine. I like the whiplash tones in this story is what I'm trying to say here. Apropos of that, as for the writing here, it was decent enough. I did like how Steiner was portrayed as more noble than his fellow Nazi airmen, but proved to be an arrogant little me first, me snob in captivity. Overall, not bad. I was entertained the entire time. George Evans' airplanes start this story. I've always liked the enemy has honor too stories. You know, just like we've seen horrible Americans, we've seen good enemies. Colorists of this era irk me with their constant inability to get simple things right. Page one, panels one and three, the fuselage star, the P-47, and outline of the German cross on the wing are in red when they're supposed to be white. I've groused about this before, like pickle-held helmets and Nazi armbands, and will no doubt continue to do so. Page four, panel six, and page six, panel three of the red eyes is poorly done too. A French vampire dining on German soldiers? Oh, yeah. Wonder if he pulled the same stunt in World War I or even the Franco-Prussian War. Love the very last panel of the dead narrator in U.S. uniform tipping his cap to Steiner's bones and page eight, panel one of Steiner tossing the five men around like nothing. Great start. Agreed. And with a... You know, split decision on the cover, but an agreement on an entertaining first story. We'll move on to the next full-length story in this issue. It is called The Voodoo Warrior. Six pages long. Script is by George Cashdan. And art, my friends, is by returning champion, well, returning person we like a lot, Jess Jodleman. That's right. Synopsis for this little tale goes like this. A crack battalion of Spanish conquistadors under Colonel Juan Munoz prepares for the final battle against the native insurrectionists. Miles away, the native commander also makes preparations, crafting a voodoo doll of Colonel Munoz on his horse. Chanting over a fire, the chief plunges a dagger into the doll's chest. Back at the Spanish encampment, Munoz's galloping horse stumbles, throwing the colonel off. 
The Spanish officer sails through the air and is killed when he is skewered on the lance of one of his own troops. That evening, there's a grim military funeral. Morale has been shattered. The outcome of the pending attack is now in doubt without El Coronel. But then, a ghostly voice fills the air. It's the colonel standing before them. Do not despair, mi amigos. I will still lead you into battle. I have returned to save you from certain defeat. In the spirit world, he had learned of the enemy's plans. They would have walked into an ambush if he hadn't returned. But now, they had the advantage and would ambush the ambushers. The Spanish celebrate as their column moves out. For hours, they march through uncharted, unfamiliar terrain, guided by their previously dead commander. Abruptly, Munoz begins to laugh hysterically, then vanishes before their eyes. An army of native warriors slams into the Spanish formation on all sides. El Coronel had led his troops into an ambush. Hemmed in by the mountains in superior numbers, the Spanish have no chance. Finally, when the killing was over, the chieftain stands among the dead, chanting. The Spanish dead rise again, fall in, and march off behind their new commander. No killjoy, not even on my end of the spectrum. Maybe I don't know that much about voodoo or zombies or whatever. I think Rich has a little bit splashed in in his C&C. Let's find out. Yes, let's. Both of the longer stories in this issue have some manner of cover tie-in, which is a nice touch. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. This might be the best voodoo story we've covered so far. Ah, the 70s. Though I honestly don't know if the natives of Central and South America practiced it. We need a Jodleman full-length battle tale at some point, or I'll write a snotty letter to APO Weird War Tales now to demand one. His panel detail of perspectives are amazing. Page two, panels three and four of the power the chieftain is portraying holding the voodoo doll, then the visible force as he slams the dagger into it. Page five, panel four of the ambush on the Spanish is so damn good. And page six, panel two of the chief standing victorious on the field of enemy dead. I'm going to be very upset when we see JJ for the last time in WWT. Agreed. And for my CNC, I'll start off by saying jumping Jess Jodleman by Jove. As Rich just pointed out, the art for this little tale is superb. And it all gets started with, you guessed it, the host intro panel. So good. I'll try not to rave about every single panel of artwork. So instead, I'll just point out a bunch of silly stuff that amused me at first. On page two, panel two, the chieftain is given off some seriously anachronistic army of darkness, Klaatu, Murata, necktie vibes, to me anyway. On page four, panel three, the lettering of the crowd's chanting made Buckster Poindexter's hot, hot, hot start playing in my head too. With a little, ole, 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 ole. It's in my head, now it's got to be in yours as well. And okay, fine. 
I just got to point out some more art spotlights. The stuff is that good. So take a gander at the undead return of Munos on page three, panels three to four, and Munos's ghostly banishing head on page five, panel three. Very simple effect, but very effective and creepy and well-rendered. And lest I be remiss in my official duties, I simply must heap some more praise on the excellently eerie and extreme close-up of our host on page six, panel four. So much detail, so creepy, so good. This was a fun story, nicely written, and wonderfully illustrated. And speaking of all that, Rich is being kind enough here, since I had a short story, and once you hear the credits of this next story to come, to give me this two-pager that wraps up the story content and the issue. It's called... The Day After Doomsday. That's right. It's a Day After Doomsday strip. It is, as I mentioned, two pages long. Script is by Steve Skeets. Y'all should know that name. You should already be pretty excited. But wait for this. Pencils are by Weird War Tales' first-timer, Steve Ditko, baby. Yes, that's right. I think you've heard of him, too. Inks by Vinny Coletta. So, you know. Got a little Marvel bullpen forming over here, along with Steve, who wrote a lot of Aquaman. So we're mixing up some legends here in this story. Let's uh, let's see how it plays out. The synopsis for this two-pager starts off with uh, some text panels I'm going to read to you, because they're just that good. goes like this. Across the land, TV sets had blinked out, and station wagons had melted. Millions of people had died in the intense nuclear heat. All the major seaports had been bombed, their beautiful buildings toppling into the bloodstained sea. The end of the world was past. The first days of mass enlightenment were yet to come. And these were those centuries in between. This was the time known as the day after doomsday. Sure, there were survivors, but they weren't people who had lived in the cities. They were people who lived on land that each side felt worthless. They didn't miss the TV because they never had one. They hadn't lost their electricity because they had their own local small town generator. Years passed and generations came and went, surviving. They were certainly good at that. Boom, jumping into the, the actual illustrated panels here. We're presented with a scene of children playing outside of a tidy home. A blonde-haired brother and sister run for dinner when their mother calls. Muskrat stew! When asked where dad is as they settle in to eat, mom tells the children he's out hunting. And he was, kind of. Actually, he was fighting a war to protect his wife and children and the wives and children of the six or seven other men who lived in the valley a strange parody of the onslaught of salesmen and revenuers. Only now, the ones that came from the city didn't just act crazy. They were crazy. Babbling, homicidal maniacs, deranged by radiation. And they came more frequently than traveling salesmen. Each night, a larger number of them tried to get into the valley. Tracking sounds... Dad finds his target, takes aim, and fires. Standing over his kill, almost exactly resembling a hairless Bigfoot, he 
he muses, sooner or later, they'll get through and kill us all. But this is one city, man, that won't see that day. And the end. No killjoy here. I mean, it's a post-apocalyptic story. I guess you could killjoy where they're getting the gas for their generators. But, uh, eh, why bother? <laughs> Comments and commendations then leaping right in. I'm going to just start off and say, suffering Steve Squared, Skeets and Ditko. This story has a lot to live up to before it even gets started. And it's only got two pages to do it in. I must admit, I had my doubts. But damn the doubts and get dressed for dinner, folks, because Steve and Steven are here to serve. This is a powerhouse pair of pages, as only the similarly specified sovereigns of storytelling can supply. Okay, that's enough Stanley Martin Lieber channeling for one podcast. And besides, I screwed that up a lot of times, and you're not going to hear it because I'm going to edit it out. But come on, people. The opening caption mentions the melting of our nation's station wagons. Horror. Horror. The twist on the typical post-apocalyptic tale here is downright charming and brings to mind the themes of corrupt civilization versus the rugged and true barbarism in Robert E. Howard's Conan stories, but with a smirk instead of a sneer. It all reminded me a bit of working at my parents' variety store in a small town in upstate New York when the tourists would arrive for the summer. An invasion of misanthropic monsters for sure. I love the mention of the dreaded traveling salesmen and revenuers, which I looked up revenuers just to be sure. I, I kind of got it, but online I found out was an agent of the U.S. Treasury Department, especially one whose responsibility is to enforce laws against illegal distilling or bootlegging of alcoholic liquor. So there you go. That's your salesmen and revenuers there. And the excellent writing gets the benefit of Ditko's talent for depicting body language and facial expressions combined with his masterful scene framing all along the way. And yes, the way here is only two pages and a total of 10 panels long, but in that minuscule measure, we get hefty helpings of world building, characterization, and action. This, folks, is a masterclass in comic book craft. Never mind weird war tales. Is day after doomsday hitting its stride as well? This is a perfect story for Ditko to debut. I'll take the bucolic scene of the kids playing on page one, panel two, and totally stealing page two, panel five from Max of Dad firing at the city man. I'm keeping it short here because I knew Max will say everything that there is to say. And like I said last time, I write the scripts and sometimes the CNC suffers for it. <laughs> All right. And so since I, again, I'm going to edit it out, but since I had such a hard time reading that because I was too excited when I was writing it and reading it, I'm going to let Rich launch us into the next section of the show. That would be called the APO Weird War Tales. There's no Cubert art header this time, just the title in all block letters. I'm actually going to start off by reading a little editorial clip first by uh, Joe Orlando. Our abridged letters column doesn't allow for another letter, but we'd like to say a brief word about this issue's cover. Artist Leopoldo Dironona made his WWT debut illustrating number 37's The Weird Wars of Don Q, as we've already stated, a novel lengther. In this issue, he's made cover billing, but the unusual wash effect is courtesy of editor Joe Orlando, who 
Apple abandoned his desk for a drawing board long enough to add the eerie tones. Gotta jump in and say that was part of the cover I really liked too. I mentioned that the moody atmospheric stuff and the shading in the background. So way to go, Joe. Man leaves his desk once in a while. Okay. Uh, my letter is the short letter by Steve Andrews of Richfield, Minnesota. Dear Joe, WWT number 43 had a fantastic cover, one of the best I've ever seen in the mag. Inside was one almost routine story and one very interesting one. Bulletproof had a nice twist at the end and through its development. The basic premise has been used before many times. I enjoyed the twists, though. Year 700 after the bomb is developing nicely. The art is very good. I have no idea how it will end since this chapter surprised me. I'm sorry to hear that WWT is now bi-monthly. I suppose this will cause an end to continued stories before they even get started. I hope that the mag will be monthly soon. And Joe responds, House of Mystery jumped back to monthly status fairly quickly, so we hope to be back up there soon too. But that's partially up to you readers who have to go out and give this mag more sales support if you want to see six more issues a year. I got nothing to add to add to that. Solid letter, solid comment. Max, your turn. Good, well thought out, constructive letters. About goddamn time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Way to go, Steve Andrews. You finally did it for us. All right. So my letter I picked out starts off with your dear Joe. First complaint of Weird War Tales number 43 is that the mag is that is that the mag going bi-monthly is a disaster. So again grousing about the bi-monthly thing. Is this doomsday or the day after? It's the usual reason, isn't it? A bad sales record. Well, your new mystery titles are responsible for that. They're killing WWT. Too much time is spent on the new mystery mags and not enough on weird war tales. My second complaint, oh, this guy's got a list, all right. Don't use those inane first page lead-ins in weird war tales. All right. I don't know why I picked this letter. I, well, because I like getting angry. So they might be suitable for other mags, but in WWT, they are space wasters. Was it put in because you had a cover with no matching story? When's that ever stopped anybody in the comic book business? As for the stories in this issue, bulletproof is something you expect from Jack Olek at his best, a master of mystery. But there was a missing screw in the story. The soldier believed he couldn't be killed by a bullet, Yet he wasn't scared, nor did he resist going home, knowing that's where he could die. Eh, I mean, y y you can't subject these stories to that much scrutiny there, buddy. All right? Where do you find out who this is at the end, too? <laughs> Your continuity experiment with the day after Doomsday is progressing well, but would progress even better and faster without all that repetition. This issue's chapter was eight pages, over three of which were a summary of the previous issue's chapter. Voyage to Limbo was a pleasant, short, well-told story by George Kashtan. By George, don't he and Oleg come from the same mold? And this letter's from someone you might have heard of, Linus Sabalius from Laval, PQ, Canada. So Linus should know, in my opinion, how these, how these stories work and shouldn't be trying to stretch them quite so hard for credulity, you know what I'm saying? Joe Orlando, being nicer than me, responds and says, Naturally, 
Weird War Tales sales relative to other DC mags played a part in the frequency shift, and equally naturally, the other factor was our desire to try some new projects, both editorially and from a publishing viewpoint. For instance, note that Tarzan will become an Orlando edited title next month, and we hope you'll take a peek at what we do there, especially since our first saga is set in wartime and features Tarzan the Untamed against the German army. There you go. It's a little Tarzan tie-in with some wartime stuff. Is Tarzan fighting the Germans weird enough for us to do a special mission? I doubt it, but hey. <laughs> there you go. That's that's our I'll go look. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you have that Tarzan issue, do you think? I don't have any Tarzan issues. Oh, okay. Just despite how much work Joe Kuber did on that title, I don't have any of it but the whole but you know set in wartime you know play that's undoubtedly world war one germans i would be totally remiss if i didn't at least look for and, and investigate yeah it does sound like at least that one issue would be up your alley so it'd be cool to find out all right with the letters page out of the way we are gonna jump into our spotlighted ads of the issue and man I'm going to kick it off with a banger of one here that I, I had forgotten all about because I was five when this comic came out. This is a full-page comic strip called Justice for All Includes Children 3. So it's part three, spoiler alert. And we've got a bunch of kids fist fighting outside of school and Superman flying down to break them up. And two grown-ups, killjoys, come around the corner and they're yelling to each other, are you the school principal? This fighting is terrible. You should throw these boys out of school right here on the spot and keep them out. And the principal says, that isn't done. There must be a hearing before someone is suspended from school. Superman turns around, does his part in this PSA, and he says, he's right. Following proper procedure means that everyone will be treated alike. <laughs> the right to ask questions means less chance for mistakes. Principal says, when someone is suspended after a hearing, he can be sure he has had all of his rights respected. And Superman naively smiles and says, being considered innocent until proven guilty is one of our basic rights. Justice for all includes children. And there's a banner at the bottom of the comic that says, published as a public service by National Periodical Publications Incorporated in cooperation with the National Center for Juvenile Justice, the research division of the National Council of Juvenile Court Judges. So that's right. This is part three of a 10-part PSA series starring Superman that ran in DC Comics from 76 to 77. We're gonna put, we're gonna give you a link to a Tumblr site I found that posts every part of the series, all 10 of them for you to enjoy. And there's also a link that I found looking up info on this to a blog post, a somewhat less optimistic assessment of the series and of the juvenile court system it was trying to promote by someone who worked within that system at the time. So I did some research, people. That's how inspiring this ad was to me. That's how much it dug into my skull. I was like, I gotta know what's going on with this. Why is Superman doing a PSA for like juvie court? Like, I know they've turned Superman into a into a freaking cop long before this, but you know, here he is pimping cops for kids. I gotta find out what's at the bottom of this. So there's actually quite a bit, and it's fun to look at. Um, 
the 10 part series is a heck of a thing to read. I think the first page has art by like Neil Adams, the first installment. So it is something folks. So that's my ad. And Rich has got something for you too. If you want to experience some more of the seventies. <laughs> I'm actually a little surprised. This is part three that one of us hadn't pulled the trigger on parts one or two. <laughs> I don't think we'd seen parts one or two in the previous, um, series, but we'd have to look. I think, I, I'm pretty sure that they were there. Okay. All right. I, mean, cool. I, I might be thinking of Shame other issues me, that man. I've written scripts for and stuff like that. Maybe I was you know, leaving them for you because I knew eventually, obviously, that you would pull the trigger on We were distracted by like a racetrack or something, you know. Or, yeah. So we, we, we had 10 more chances to pick this out. Yeah. I think that's we were saying. distracted by Zap Action Model Kits, I'm calling it. Or something like that. Yeah. So, anyway, yes. Speaking of the 70s. Venus fly traps. Is it animal or vegetable? Hey, maybe it's mineral, mineral too. Who's to say? Like Jack Kirby said, don't ask, just buy it. Hours of fun, experiments, amaze your friends with its fascinating feeding habits. Eats flies, bugs, insects, even meat. Make it perform only when you command. Yeah, I'm going to call bullshit on that. Truly the most unusual plant in the world. Send $2 for complete kit which includes five bulbs growing soil and instructions plant world a p.o box 10066 newark new jersey 07101 <laughs> that's all i got <laughs> what else needs to be said an ad for venus fly traps <laughs> i mean we all had them i had at least two of the things and so did my brother and you remained fascinated with them like all these things for like a few weeks and then you were like, yeah, that was kind of just that's what that plant does, huh? And then you're like, you're on your own plant. I hope some fly drops in there by accident because I'm off with my hermit crabs now, which will also soon eat each other. <laughs> and they'll die and they'll stink because I'll forget to feed them. And, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> we didn't have to remember to feed our hermit crabs because there was like a war between my hermit crabs and Mark's that escalated to the point where my mom had to stop it. Like, <laughs> one night... His hermit crab just ate mine, so I got a bigger one. It ate his. He went and got a bigger one. Same thing happened, and my mom was like, that's it. These things are, like, as big as a small dog, and they're, now I can hear them eating each other, you know? So cut it out. So we had Venus flying traps, too, is what I'm saying. Hermit crab cold war. This episode took an unusual turn, didn't it, folks? <laughs> I had the freaking sea monkeys. I had all that crap. I mean, for some reason, I was allowed to, to get my parents to order all this stuff. It might be because my mom was only 19 years older than me, and she was young enough to find it funny. Who knows? Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of absolutely nothing related to any of that, we're going to skip the dead letter office this time around because we're doing the summer slowdown. We're recording two before Rich goes off to take a, a nice relaxing break with the army. And uh, actually, <laughs> uh, we already did the nice relaxing break with the army. This is the nice relaxing break with the family. I'm doing the chaperone thing out to the Pacific Northwest. Oh, okay. So a nice relaxing break with the family, which, you know, who's to say which one's more relaxing? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so I will mention, because we have a contest going on, people that if you buy something from redbubble.com with the Weird Warriors podcast logo on it, you go to redbubble.com, you search the Weird Warriors podcast, you could put that awesome logo drawn and designed 
by Bill Walco of The Hero Business and many other projects on any piece of merchandise you can possibly find on redbubble.com. And when you do so and take a picture of yourself with it and send it to our email address or post it on the Facebook page where Rich will see it, you enter in to win a star from a flag that flew above Sam Glansman's house. All right? So there's no reason not to do it now. You don't have to do it for us because you really haven't so far. But <laughs> do it for Sam, okay? So that's that's it for the Dead Letter Office because uh, we really just did one. We just did an episode. So I'm going to shut up and let Rich come on in and hit you with something you'll like to hear. A teaser for the next episode. Or... We could backtrack one paragraph and do got any last words first. Oh, shit, I skipped up. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Okay, so going back in time at this timestamp, Max, when you're editing later, we're going to leave the ads behind. The issue's all wrapped up. We're done with the story. We're done with the ads. We're done with the letters page. So I got to wonder, Rich, you got any last words? Perhaps an unusual choice of words, considering where I was writing this. Because I'm committed, or perhaps because I should be, I worked on this script while on my annual reserves training at West Point, training tomorrow's leaders on hand grenades and sitting next to about 150 of them at a time in the process. We have another complete winning package in my book just like I thought we would as soon as I perused it for last episode's teaser. No real killjoy. Well, I wrote that before Max, you know, dropped his little vampire knowledge. Other than some coloring flubs, after a bit of mental gymnastics, I have to stick to my brand and give Kill or Be Killed the dub. Keep them coming. Still no real killjoy because vampires are imaginary. But <laughs> I gotta say, oh my God, buddy, look at this issue so much goodness and even in my opinion featuring a cover that redeems a previously reviled artist although i just learned that he got a leg up from joe orlando and some of the effects that i like so i'm watching you duranona <laughs> you're on notice all right i really liked every story here but as you may have guessed i gotta give it to the day after doomsday and that incredible Ditko and Skeet's fueled display of comic book mastery. Now here, Max, is where you put the dead letter office in and lead Rich into the teaser and mute yourself again. Weird War Tales 47, where I thought we'd start 2024, so not a terrible guess. Vikings, Toy Story 3? This is a recording. Well, obviously, because I'm damn sure you don't want to listen to this show live. If you trust me on nothing else, especially today, trust me on this. And it's the bicentennial, baby. USA, USA, USA. If you love America, you'll be there. I mean, I'll even be there regardless. So, you know, you can be there no matter what, if you want. But <laughs> you've also been here for this, by the way. And you know what this was? This was the Weird Warriors podcast. Rich and I... We were the Batlam Bros. We were the Weird Warriors. And as always, we promise to make war. No more.